This is the Voices in Japan podcast with Ben and Burke, and on this episode, Kayoko Mitsumatsu joins us to share her experiences working as a producer and director at NHK, which is Japan's national broadcaster, and at the Embassy of Japan in London. She also shares the very encouraging and inspirational story behind the mission of Yoga Gives Back, which is a nonprofit organization that Kayako founded in 2007 that has mobilized the global yoga community to empower over 1,400 women and children in India by helping them build sustainable livelihoods through microloans coordinated by representatives in 30 countries. Apart from those topics, we also discuss some challenges within Japanese society, such as poverty, the country's relatively high suicide rate, and the scarcity of therapy and counseling. Please enjoy this motivating episode with Kayako, and please also visit yogagivesback.org to learn more about the organization and how you can help their mission with even a small donation in the same amount as the cost of a cup of coffee. And now, on with the show. 1,2,3 Yeah, so again, thanks、uh, for agreeing to talk to us. You have uh, uh, quite an interesting background to found.、Um, so, Uh, if you wouldn't mind, maybe first of all, just kind of letting us know a little bit about where, you, where exactly you're from in Japan and、uh, yeah. what it was like kind of growing up in that area. Yes, so I,、uh, I was born in Tokyo and、okay. I grew up in Tokyo with, until I was 13. I was just、uh, in the middle of like, Tokyo, so like, that's all I knew when I was growing up.、Um, I was born in 1960, so. Uh, we used to have like little temple, like festivals, and you know, like these really good times. Tokyo Olympics was 1964. I still remember in the clouds how the airplanes made like five colorful rings with air, you know, airplanes. Yeah, I went to local kindergarten, local、uh, primary school, and、uh, yeah, very peaceful, fun <laughs> childhood. No problems.、Um, my father was a banker, so we lived in a bank apartment. You know how everything, now that I live in the United States and I've also lived in many other countries like Brazil, I've seen how the wealth can divide the countries and societies. And fortunately, growing up in Tokyo in the 60s and 70s, it was such a middle class society.、Um, of course, I saw some. Poverty, maybe here and there, like when we go to temples for the festival, some kid was asking, begging money and stuff like that. But we really didn't see like homeless, like we see today in Los Angeles. If we ever come here, you wouldn't believe this. So I guess it was like kind of peaceful. <laughs> and Japan was growing so fast at that time, you know, color television was coming in, the bullet train was starting. And so I guess, and my father was a workaholic, like a regular salary man, like everybody else. So I just guess there was a good energy. And、uh, I was very fortunate. I just had that kind of life, focusing on my school and friends and play. <laughs> Yeah, you said,、uh, <clears throat> you mentioned the homelessness. And yeah, I, I mean, 
being in Japan for the last 18 years, I've heard a lot about how it's kind of uh, the problem has grown uh, more and more uh, in Los Angeles, especially in recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's kind of also a bit of a misconception that people have about Japan is that uh, they look at Japan as being a very wealthy country. Yeah. Uh, but my understanding is that there's actually quite a bit of poverty. Yes. Um, there's quite a bit, not obviously as much homelessness as there are in, uh, some other countries like the U S. Um, but there's probably a lot more in Japan that, uh, than, uh, people would expect. And also poverty levels just because of lower salaries or a lot of single working, uh, mothers yes. or single mothers in general and stuff. Uh, is that kind of your understanding too? Oh yes. Especially with COVID right now, I think the real po- Poverty issues and also like work in Japan. Like I, I really understand that you know part-time workers, are mainly women or you know kids with low educational background, and they have no safety net. And they are the ones who are you know fired first with the uh, companies losing jobs. And pl- so I heard that the um, the suicide in Japan is increasing among younger women. And I, I just was, you know, really saddened to hear that. Um, of course, Japan had an amazing uh, bubble decade in the 80s. But after that, I know, I'm aware how the economy crashed and it just impacted so much. And uh, once I started going back to Japan in the middle, I think around 90, mid-90s, I started to see more homeless population in Tokyo. Mm. And... Uh, Maybe they have moved or government moved them somewhere. We, I don't think I saw, I haven't been back to Japan for a year now, but uh, I know the economy economic situation is very difficult for many people. And I think Japan seems to be following like American path. Top 1% makes 90%, you know, they take 90% wealth of <laughs> the whole thing, top 1%. Mm. And uh, the country is supposed to be so wealthy, but you would not believe the amount of homeless people. And, uh, you know, what's going on today is really sad. Mm. Yeah, and the suicide too, I mean, that's definitely, from my understanding too, has been picking up, <clears throat> uh, just like you said, uh, especially with covid and then also, there's been a lot of high-profile suicides last year yeah, that they said right. is also kind of uh, uh, resulting in like uh, copycat suicide or a run-up to that. Yeah, and suicide, in, suicide in general, like uh, in Japan, it's really difficult for like Westerners uh, to kind of understand it. Um, I don't know if it's like different culturally or what it is, but, you know, it does kind of have a bit of a stigma for suicide in Japan. Mm-hmm. And um, unfortunately, when I was growing up in high school, like there were some students <clears throat> that uh, that we knew that commit suicide or maybe some of their parents and stuff. Um, but just in Japan, like you hear these awful stories like during uh, uh, exam season for like university students, the yeah. suicide levels go up and stuff. I mean, is there something culturally, I mean, is it, date back you know like some people try to characterize like the samurai days or something of uh, <laughs> shame leading to suicide or i mean what do you what do you th- think it is uh or your opinion about uh, uh why there may be a uh, higher incidence of suicide in japan or or where the problem stems from yeah um yeah it's a very serious issue and um i 
One of the reasons maybe is because Japan is such a homogeneous society and um, the expectation to be obedient or to comply with a group, group's intention or group's norm is so strong. So when you don't fit because of your bad grades or, you know, you're not just interested because of your age or whatever, you know, or your sexual orientation or whatever, um, then it's very difficult to find um, a refuge. You know, there aren't, uh, um, maybe there are more. I think I've I've left Japan like over almost 30 years ago. So I know that Japan has changed quite a bit in terms of social awareness and uh, like these volunteer groups and so on. But uh, I do feel like in America, if you have problems, you, you, you find some same kind of group of people who share the same issues. So you can either find on the internet or, you know, go to like meeting or something. Um, and also a therapist. Uh, I went through very bad divorce in this country <laughs> and uh, I had to, um, I was so weak and I, I was told to go to see a therapist and I just thought, oh my God, I have to see a therapist and you have to pay and blah, blah, blah. But I have learned these professionals um, are very helpful. You know, of course, friends and uh, people with likely minded people are helpful, of course, but to have like therapy at your, you know, like at your fingertip, you know, just you, if you just pay some money, you can just have professional support. I think that makes huge difference. And it is, it's, it is not uh, like you talked about stigma, but it's not a mental illness. People go through difficulties. So it's okay. If somebody can tell you, it's okay if you're going through this, you know, it's not your fault. We tend to blame ourselves for things that are not going, you know, for the direction that's supposed to be, which, you know, that's pressure is very strong in Japan that you're supposed to go to this direction and if you don't fit. Uh, the pressure is very strong. So I do think, um, and, the, and then this uh, mental care, psychological um, counseling, you know, they are not really uh, readily available. Quite often they are, you are labeled as uh, mentally ill, which you are not a lot of times. You're just facing very difficult situation. So I think um, maybe there are less opportunities to solve problems with professionals, with organizations, things like that. There's not much support system. That's what I want to say. Yeah. Is there a chance, do you think, for like uh, psychiatry to to grow in Japan or, or that type of uh, support from professionals? Because, um, you know, from what I hear talking to Japanese people that I know, uh, there's really not that type of uh, system. I don't even know. I mean, I would think it might be the case, but I'm not even sure if, like, the National Health Insurance Program uh, covers psychological counseling, yeah. uh, allows people to go see psychiatrists and stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, when you call, when you talk about psychiatrists, say Shinkai, right, then mm. you're talking about, like, mental illness. So that always um, adds stigma different. to the whole thing. So it has okay. to be, like, a psychotherapist or psychology counseling. Okay. They have to realize, I think it's a different, it's not illness, right? I think that's the big, big difference. And uh, I think that field is not so mature in Japan. I have, a, I, I used to have a friend who tried to become psychotherapist. And I remember she was telling me how 
it's very difficult to find courses, even you know, academic courses like that. I, 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 maybe there are more now. Yeah. But I think that even, you know, in the United States, this mental illness issue is very, very serious right now because of the um, drug situation and uh, people. It's very different here when you think about it. When you talk about this kind of issue here, it is how to how not to um, put people with um, drug problems um, into jail. That's the real problem here. They are not mentally ill. They have to be treated. And and here there is a huge wealth of dealing with these kind of issues, mental uh, uh, drug issues or separating mental illness from um, just drug abuse. Yeah. And and in and in Japan, it, it seems like it's kind of frowned upon to, to even talk about therapy or psychiatry. Like I sometimes suggest yeah. it to my Japanese friends, you know, who are yeah. going through problems, especially uh, marriage problems, and suggest, oh, why don't you see like a couples therapist? And they won't yeah. even consider it. They're like, no, that that's ridiculous. I would never do that. And it's almost like yeah. kind of shameful here to admit that you're having that you need to speak to someone about those problems. And I'm just wondering if um, if it's changed at all since when you were in Japan, and do you think it's changing or if it could change? I, I have no idea how it is these days, you know. So, but if the um, suicide rate is going up, I just think there is not much, you know, place for people to talk about these issues. Yeah, it's kind of clear that there is a definitely that could help um, psychiatry yeah. could help with those people. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, sorry to kind of go into such a serious topic right That's away. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how, how we went in there. <laughs> I, I mean, it is obviously becoming more popular because of COVID, and then also, like yeah. uh, for example, that uh, high-profile suicide of the young uh, woman who was on <clears throat> the popular uh, Netflix program. Uh, terrace house there's been a larger movement towards uh trying to get young people to get help and stuff so yeah uh, but yeah uh but uh kind of going back maybe to uh a little bit uh, lighter topic so you said you lived in uh, tokyo until you were 13 and then uh did you move overseas at that point or did no actually because of my father's yeah, job i have to change my junior high school every year so from tokyo i suddenly went to um Ashia near Osaka. So suddenly I was surrounded by this Kansai, Kansai band. <laughs> and I, I tried to, you know, mimic, but I just couldn't, you know, it's very difficult. So I, that was my first, like, uh, very um, strong experience that I, I realized there is a different culture here. And also the studies were different and teachers or everybody was different, friends with, you know, everything is totally different. Um, and then after I got used to it, I had to, move again back to Tokyo and then I had to go into a completely different school in Tokyo which was a disaster to me um, the only thing I kept going and I have learned so much from this moving you know junior high school year is a very sensitive you know um, year like 12 to 14 or 15 so um, that I just have to give put everything 100% my effort because nobody knows. Every time I land to a new school, nobody knows me, and I just don't want to be treated, you know, badly because I'm just new and different, you know, person. Just so anyway, I kind of learn how I just have to put hundred percent each time. So as a result, my grades were okay, 
when I first moved to Osaka area, my grades were horrible. And my teacher used to tell me like, oh, Miss Mitsumatsu, if you go this way, you never get to high school and you just work in a factory and thank you so much. <laughs> it was so nasty. And my mom almost fell off the chair. Like, what? what's going on? So, you know, this, I, I just, now I appreciate very much how important it is to experience different culture at young age, even within the same country. You know, just not stay in a warm, you know, comfortable water forever without knowing there is a lot of waves and ripples out there. You uh, didn't end up in the factory. You actually uh, <laughs> ended up at uh, NHK for yeah. for quite a while, I understand. You were a, a producer and director. Did you start out as producer and director or did you kind of start out in a lower position at NHK? No, at that time, then I went to NHK. So I went to um, high school and college in Tokyo. In the meantime, I went to Australia and Brazil together four years. And I came back and I graduated from college in Tokyo. And I I was very interested in different cultures, as you can tell. <laughs> like So anyways, and living in Australia and Brazil for some years gave me a stronger uh view about how important it is to understand different cultures so and i lo- used to love to watch nhk's documentary programs so i thought one day okay i'm going to be a documentary filmmaker and telling stories of like carnival in real and the true story behind it it's not just like this violent sexy event but there's a lot of spirituality that i learned when i lived in brazil behind this especially among the poor population how it is spiritually. So uh, that was the story I told to NHK's, uh, inter- at the NHK's interviews to the directors, and they loved it. <laughs> and um, it was 1984 when I graduated. And I, at that time, you can only apply for NHK's job as a director, journalist, um, anchor person, or administrative admin jobs. So I wanted to become a director, so I just applied for it. And luckily, I got in. And I worked there really almost 24-7 for seven full years, uh, making uh, documentary programs, um, good morning programs, radio programs. I lived even in uh, Nagoya for three years to make local programs as a training, you know, like uh, newly um, entered um, director. So, So going into NHK straight as a director, so you were pretty young, like as a, a new graduate, what what was that like um, for people working under you? Because you're kind of like directing, I guess, uh, you know, older people, especially men. What what was that like? Was that was that difficult? Was that a challenge? Yeah, um, yeah, it was unbelievable because, like you said, you just graduated from college with very little social experience, and then we got just one month training, <laughs> <laughs> and then we are all sent into different programs. There were actually only three girls um, as directors, you know, graduate uh, from college. So we were spread out and I was put into arts program, educational channel, channel three. Um, and I, I didn't make major arts or anything like that. So um, I just followed. I was just, uh, I was attached, assigned to support senior directors or many different programs. And then that's how I learned how to make a program. And then within a couple of months, I was uh, supposed to produce one program um, about a particular Edo artist. It was a big challenge. and uh, But all, all, all the senior directors and producers helped me 
a lot. And that's when I started learn. Becoming a TV director means you get to sleep in the office. <laughs> um, and it's extremely stressful. But I really, one thing I liked about even during the, my、um, training time, there were about 45 guys. You can see、uh, this was before equal opportunity law was passed in Japan. So、um, women or employment was less than 10%. So as a result, there were 45 directors, male directors from college graduates. And then three women only. So it was kept under 10%. And so we were like total minorities and we had different time cards. We couldn't work the same amount of、uh, extra hours. So we were spending a lot of、uh, free hours with no pay. Whereas men could charge much more over time. Things like that. Can you believe it? It was before equal opportunity law passed. Yeah, I think some people might not even catch exactly what you're saying. So you're, you're saying that, like, just because you're a woman, you're only allowed to bill up to, well, not bill, but you're only considered a, allowed to work a certain number of hours. But in reality, you had to work much more than that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, and, and the 10%, were there actually a lot more、um, women interested in getting the job there, but they could only hire up to 10%, or there was only. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if it was a like, written code or anything like that, but I know at my year,、um, newspaper said there were 1,200 college graduate women applied for job, 10, 10 spots. Women had only 10 spots at NHK at that time three directors, two journalists, one anchor person, and、uh, I think two or three、um, admin, administration jobs. So there were only 10. And 1,200 women applied. Wow. So it was highly competitive. And、uh, yeah, the opportunities were not the same. And I know, like, after I left NHK in the early 90s, things changed. And suddenly, I think there were almost half, half women and men. And there are a lot of female directors now. So things have changed a lot since then. And That's good to hear. And you were mentioning that、uh, you know, you were working 24 7、uh, during your time there. Was that、uh, because of Japanese business culture? Was it more just the industry, media industry itself kind of requires that as well?、Or? I think it's both. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I,、uh, it's a combination of like worse, like work ethic, culture, work, you know, I don't know, I think what, how do you say it, like culture plus Japanese work. Ethic.、Um, mm. Yeah, so、um, the job itself, of course, before they, we put, put the programs on the air, it, it is a highly time sensitive work. So you have to put a lot of, you can't just、uh, go home in a, in a regular time. There's a, it's like endless, you know, it, because you want to make it as best as it could. And so it's like an art, <laughs> you know, there's no end to it. So yeah, I just,、uh, I did seven years. And、uh, I did my best, and I have learned. I am so grateful for the, all the opportunities that I've gained through my work because I did a lot of different programs.、Um, Were there any、um, really kind of rememberable programs that you worked on that you're really、uh, proud of or enjoyed making? Yes,、um, 
none of them I can just only say enjoy because it was like a lot of difficult situations too, but maybe a program about, I did about a Japanese a Brazilian, um, Japanese Brazilians coming back to Japan around 87, 88. That was the start, start of the returning of the Japanese descendants from Brazil to make money, you know, to, and go back to Brazil. Um, so I spotted that because of um, my living in Japan, I mean, Brazil in the late 70s because of my father's work. Uh, so I did a documentary about that. That was very interesting. And also stories like um, kid with um, intellectual uh, disability handicap, how they were um, really prejudiced in the society. Um, I did a lot of programs like that. I felt uh, it was my kind of mission <laughs> to shed light and voice for the voiceless. The more I work there, the stronger that sense grew within me. So I did a lot of discussions and fights with my seniors uh, to get the proposal passed. And uh, yeah, there were a lot of stories maybe I shouldn't share <laughs> in public. But uh, yeah, it was a very highly stressful job. At the same time, very interesting, very educating, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Yeah, how exactly... Uh, does that process work? I mean, um, are directors kind of given free reign to submit proposals for any programs they want uh, that they would like to make, or is there kind of a decision being made that uh, okay, we need to make this type of program, uh, you know, for this uh, upcoming broadcast season or something? So please go out and try and find good subject matter. Um, which way does it work? Does uh, does the do the directors get to propose what they want to make, and then it gets reviewed a lot more, or is there kind of requirements that uh, are given to the directors? Yeah, I'm not sure how it is today because it's mine. It's like '80s and you know basically <laughs> '80s uh, example. But uh, yes, um, I worked a daily morning show that was a really current affairs program, so we were encouraged to find cutting edge current affair topics at that time. Um, so you go newspapers or find stories in town or whatever you can. And we have a meeting, uh, weekly or monthly meetings, and all the directors bring in there. We have to write proposal, which is, that, that that's one of the uh, most important jobs to find a story and write a convincing proposal and go to the meeting and discuss it and uh, get Okay means get funded so you can make a program. If it's not good enough, if it's not appealing, you know, you get the you get to make somebody else's proposal. <laughs> <laughs> and as with NHK being the national broadcaster in Japan, is there a different expectation on either the quality or the type of programs that are being made, or is it? I mean. Is it considered uh, just trying to compete uh, for viewership with other networks within Japan too? Yeah, you know, again, it's 30 years ago, so it might have changed. But one thing I really enjoyed was there was no pressure so much about the viewership. But in particular, my program, my the program I spent a lot of time and I learned a lot was a morning Good Morning Journal. <laughs> At that time, it was like a cutting edge, uh, like front line, um, really digging, you know, the dark side of the society and bring it out kind of shed light to what's really going on 
in senior citizens' homes, so like uh, commercial schemes and stuff. You know, we, we did a lot of com- controversial, but uh, stories, current affairs stories, and um, we were just encouraged to find really good stories that tells the reality of the society. Um, and that program was fantastic in that sense. It's very, it's it's not there anymore, and it's totally changed since because I think we did too much. Uh, controversial programs <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's quite interesting because we don't really see that stuff on tv on nhk today even in japan and that that's the kind of programs that i'm really interested in you know like serious issues um like documentaries but you don't see much of that in japan these days which is kind of a shame yeah things changed mm, i think they, they seem to want to keep things lighter um you know there's a lot of comedy, a lot of variety shows, not so yeah. many uh, serious topics that people kind of want to address. Yeah, that's one thing. When I go back to Japan and watch TV, I'm kind of amazed how serious topics are debated by um, not experts, not serious experts, right. but by celebrities. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Comedians. Comedians. Right. And they, it has all this uh, cartoon, like animation, like article, like, you know, incredible like funny light-hearted comments when they're talking serious stuff that's one thing you know so I, after i left to, um nhk i went to uh, england that was uh, 1991 and the gulf war just began and i was struck even at that time i was struck how I, i'm sure uk has changed since then too but uh, i was struck how um individualistic the broadcasting programs were at that time that take how one director takes on the Gulf War um, was very different from the other person and the other channel and you can tell like artistic take humanitarian take um, ethnic take you know all sorts of angles were all on TV and I used to take notes and like wow now there is this take now there is this take and everything was so well done I was very impressed to just watch TV um, at that time when I went there. What did you go on to do after leaving NHK? Yeah, so somehow I got a job <laughs> um, when I was at NHK in my seventh year. I got a job from a foreign office through my friend to become like a kind of cultural attaché at the Embassy of Japan in London because they were looking for somebody from media um, to help their um, biggest uh, event of the century or something like that, UK and Japan, they were experiencing a good economy at that time uh, in the early 90s. So they did a big Japan festival in the UK, which involved, um, of course, royal families. And they um, UK brought Kabuki to Sumo to um, Seijo Zawa to, um, you name it, all the Japanese, uh, like classical to jazz, you know, Watanabe. Did you meet the Queen? No, <laughs> I didn't meet the queen, but we worked. We worked with uh, Buckingham, mm. Buckingham Palace uh, press office, and Princess Diana was still there. Oh. Uh, Prince Philip, and Crown Prince, uh, today's Emperor Hirohito. I mean Naruhito, not Hirohito. Naruhito. <laughs> he came to UK, and all the sumo wrestlers uh, came, and we made a sumo, you know, London basho, you know, like dohyo in Albert, Royal Albert Hall. So it was a big, big deal. So I made a little, like, a documentary about it. And um, I just became, like, 
impressed person uh, for that particular festival and also like G, uh, G Summit, G7 Summit and stuff like that. So it was very interesting to learn how, <laughs> how the press work actually with um, press clubs. And uh, I learned from the government side how, how things work with the press. How, uh, how different was it um, making a, a documentary or directing a documentary in Japan compared to what you did in, in England? Yeah, my job was like government PR vi- video. So it's, I shouldn't even call it documentary. I documented. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there was not, I tried to put a little angle here and there, but that's about it. Right, right. <laughs> Um, so now, now Kyoko, you're doing um, your uh, Yoga Gives Back. So you yes. are the founder of that. Um, can you share with our listeners like how that started and, and when, when it started? Give some background. Yes. So I moved to Los Angeles in um, 2000, I forgot, about 30 <laughs> years ago. I can't even remember when I moved here. 2001? No, no 1990-something. Anyways, um, just after the riot, LA riot, I came here and um, I started working uh, to make living. I started working as an independent producer and director. And I told all my friends at NHK, I knew a lot of people then. So I said, you know, hey, if you need any coordinator producer here, I'm here available now. So my all, all my friends were, you know, like in the middle career and Everybody had an opportunity to do all sorts of programs. So I started getting a lot of requests. So I, I was doing a lot of different programs for 20, almost 20 years here. And then um, in 2006, I was doing a very interesting program about social entrepreneurship, um, which included like uh, Kiva. Uh, do you know Kiva? Kiva is an online micro microfinancing company, which was just making $1 million online, asking people to donate, just not donate, but invest $25 and that goes to women in Ethiopia or Cambodia or whatever it's as a microfinance micro loan microfinance and Dr. Mohammed Yunus from Bangladesh just won Nobel Peace Prize in 2007 so I, I was learning a lot about how social entrepreneurship works and uh, how microfinancing works um, how small money can change people's lives so dramatically especially in third world countries and at that time also, like, I just started to do yoga. I always liked any athletic exercise. I actually became black belt with Taekwondo here. Oh, wow. <laughs> but I, I didn't really enjoy the aggressiveness of Taekwondo at the end. So I was looking for something, and I, some, somebody, my friend told me, let's do yoga. So I started yoga, and I just got so into it. I just felt uh, really... Uh, bliss after practice and I started also learning about the history and spirituality side of yoga and um, so I I started to feel very happy and healthy and I really I think I was around 47 at that time and I felt like my career was like going well I had a lot of tv projects to work on but um, I always felt sense of exploitation at the same time exploiting people's stories, exploiting organization, exploiting my work, my commitment. There was, not, there was something missing 
in there, even though we were telling good stories. And we did a lot of them. So when I started doing yoga, I started to feel like that that kind of uh, negativity was never there. And I just felt so grateful. And I just wanted to, I just felt like I have to use myself. Here's the thing. I remember I read somewhere that said, first half of your life is about all about learning, experiencing and learning. But the second half of your life is to give back, to use all you have learned and give back. Uh, you can give back to your family or your friends or different parts of the world. In my case, I just feel like I was benefiting so much in a very fundamental sense from the practice of yoga. I just thought we should give back to India where yoga is from. And because I was doing a documentary about microfinancing and India was a big part of recipient of microfinancing for very poor, big population of poor, poor you know, people. I knew the poverty issues in India. I have never been there, but I, because I lived in Brazil, I could kind of guess uh, how that could change. So I just started to tell my yoga teacher, how about you know, doing something to give back to India, the birthplace of yoga? And in 2007, um, there were, yoga was becoming very popular, but there weren't many charities. And there were, I couldn't find any charities or nonprofit organization who focused on giving back to India. And now that I think about it, it was kind of, I kind of hit in a way jackpot. Uh, nobody was doing it. So every, everybody I told, everybody was interested. And so long story short, I, this is our 14th year, and this is still grassroots movement, but we have reached to over 30 countries in the world, and uh, we are now empowering funding over, over 1,400 underserved, underserved mothers and children. So for women, for over 500 women, we give microloans, and uh, almost uh, 600 or 700 children and young people, we give education funds. Some are orphans, some are young girls who are abandoned in a group home. We give like 300 youths with five-year scholarship for higher education. And uh, we see dozens of young people now graduating from college degree and they're becoming a real change makers in the villages and the societies. And so this has become my true life mission. I'm so grateful that somehow I step into this world and uh, my background as a documentary filmmaker has become very handy because ever since I started going to India in 2007, I've been filming their stories, uh, fund recipient stories, and that has become a, a huge outreach um, tool and at no cost, not very minimum cost because I, do, I did everything um, I could. I still do <laughs> with very little, uh, you know, cost. So that's a, I mean, that's an amazing uh, accomplishment. Uh, you know, it sounds like a lot of things coalesce the right way for you uh, to be able to kind of uh, get this off the ground and running. But I think there's might be a lot of people who may feel the motivation to try to try to do something like that, but they may just have no idea to how to get started to create this type of that type of organization. Uh, do you remember exactly <clears throat> when you were getting it started and excuse me, the process and the steps that you started to go through to kind of get it running and get it things in motion? Yes, um, it's just step by step, day by day. 
it's not like I had a big strategic business plan. <laughs> I just I just felt very strongly. Now I now that I'm older and I've done this for 14 years and it kind of grew, kept growing, I I can really feel confident to say that if you believe in something, just keep at it. Just don't give up. Keep talking to people. Like even today or yesterday. Well, this is a new year. I have to raise this much money to do this and that, you know, so I have so much in my mind. And some days, like, you feel like, oh, can I do this this year? You know, things like that. But then as soon as I talk to, like, you guys, I talk to somebody, just step out of your comfort zone and just share your ideas. Even if you don't get anything back, at least you're talking to somebody and you... And sometimes you never know. You've, you learn, you meet somebody suddenly by, any, by chance. Then you believe in something very strongly. And I just feel very important to mention this. That I think it's very important to find something that you don't feel exploited. I feel very strongly about that. In a society, wherever you live, there are so many... Of course, to make living, you have to be exploited <laughs> to a certain degree. But... Um, don't let that happen to you to, so to, to a degree where you're kind of losing yourself. You know, that's, that's not good. You, you have to keep your core strong. And if you feel exploited, you have to remember that. You don't want this. Then how do you change that? Um, I feel that was very strong in me. And, but I didn't know that, that this organization, Yoga Gives Back, will grow this much. Um, so along the way, I just kept talking. I just kept talking to people. Uh, it was a bit like when you're making a program, you just don't give up until you find some good subject to share the story with you because a lot of people don't like, especially in Japan, people don't like to talk to you on, on TV camera. So you have to really convince people with all sorts of ways. Right? So I, I feel like the resilience um, of not giving up, it's not, it's not easy. But also like having a practice like yoga or meditation for me also like sustained me because when you don't feel good, you don't, you feel a little down. Um, if you do a little exercise and I've learned so much mindfulness practice through yoga and meditation now and read uh, inspirational people's words um, for yourself, not for grades or for something to show, to talk to other people, but for enriching your spirit. And that's, if you have something like that inside you and find a way how you sustain yourself like that, I think it becomes a little bit easy. Mm. Do you think um, being in Japan, it's harder to do something like that? Because I, I notice since I've been here, there's not many kind of, charities around and not many people do volunteer work like being in england you can easily you know donate yeah. things um, but in japan it's quite hard to do that so yeah. i mean I, I had students that wanted to do kind of volunteer work but they didn't really know where to start so i yeah. wonder for them do you have any tips like actionable things that they could do just to get started with things like that like helping yeah. people yeah like you can help like senior citizens li living by themselves. Um, just, you know, I, I live in an apartment, big apart apartment complex here, and I used to do that. We have a senior citizen program, and I learned how, to, how this kind of volunteerism is really helpful. Like just commit yourself to visit single, you know, single person living senior 
once a week and just make sure they're okay. Talk to them for like an hour, half an hour. You learn about their lives and you realize like a little help of being there, give, give a company, uh, makes their life a little bit uh, better that day. They, they feel a, bit, a little bit better, things like that. So you can start from uh, not big things, just to start from like in your neighborhood or your family. I think that's important. And yeah, it is uh, it is difficult, more difficult, I think, in Japan to find volunteer works. But I think I, I understand it's really changed more young people are doing and willing to do volunteer work, especially after Fukushima, you know. Mm. And you were mentioning <clears throat> also that uh, yoga, give ba- yoga Gives Back is now in, you know, so many countries. Um, and I was curious to know, uh, how do you find those uh, people in those countries to work with? Are they reaching out to you guys? And also, uh, how are you guys finding the, uh, the people uh, to give the support to in those different countries? Yes. So um, the people in over 30 countries, they are all yoga practitioners mainly. They find us. Um, initially, you know, I had to talk to the teachers in Los Angeles. And my lucky thing was I was, I'm in Los Angeles, basically in Los Angeles, which is a yoga mecca, you know, like a big uh, two people gurus in the 1800s from India, uh, Vivekananda and Yogananda. Uh, if you're in the yoga world, you know these names, but... Um, these two gurus came to Los Angeles, to United States, to bring yoga into the West, but they settled in Los Angeles. So Los Angeles huge spiritual history of yoga. As a result, the world leaders, many of them in the yoga world, live here and teach classes. So I was able to talk to these people to, you know, would you become ambassador and just, you know, spread our word and stuff like that. I begged initially, you know, like whoever is interested, please, please. And uh, because I had nothing to give, right? But now many people come to us and say, how can I become your ambassador? (laughs) Because now we have more visibility on the social media and stuff like that. So people like to get involved. And, uh, yeah, so we fundraise through these yoga communities uh, in from over 30 countries. And um, I have also, I have been very fortunate, but uh, I found very two good uh, three non-governmental organizations, NGOs in India through friends. And I went there and I met directors and uh, in 2010. Uh, so ever since 2010, we've been working with this three NGOs and that's where we uh, money goes and 1400 women and children are supported. Well, Kayoko, I, I think it's amazing what you're doing and, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I love your advice about the, uh, you know, uh, working or gain experience half of your life and then the next half like giving back. So I'm I'm not quite there yet. I think I've got another twenty years, so <laughs> ten or twenty years, and then I could start giving back. But uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's so great to hear your story, and and I really appreciate you coming on uh, on the show. Thank you. Yeah, could you also uh, share with uh, our listeners about uh, where they can learn more about the organization and and uh, perhaps also uh, get involved in the type of work that it's doing? Yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, so. If you can just go to yogagivesback.org, that's our website, and uh, you can check 
what we do there. And uh, we're always looking for volunteers. Uh, like you guys are bilingual, so you can help us translate a film into Japanese. That's a huge issue always. Um, things like that. You know, anybody can, um, uh, if you, I always say, like, if you feel um, grateful for the practice of yoga received in your life, why don't you join us and give back? Only five dollars, even five dollars, um, you know, a cup of coffee, a latte, uh, that can change life in India. So I'm not asking you to run five kilometers or give us, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. It, it's not that. You know, my goal is to engage one million yogis out of 300 million people enjoying yoga in the world. So just fraction, one million people join us willing to give us five dollars that's five million dollars we don't have right <laughs> and we can change millions millions of people's lives and that ripple effect is humongous well thank you so much kaioko i mean you're a very inspirational person and uh you've actually obviously had a lot of uh very interesting experience in your life and and to hear that somebody such a good person like you is also putting all their energy into such a good organization it's uh it's definitely very inspirational and uh, thank you again uh for joining us uh for this episode thank you so much namaste thank you This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Rusu Lodges, which are open all year round. They're located just five minutes away from the main Rusutsu ski resort gondola. There are Japanese western and apartment style rooms with breakfast packages available. There's also a Sento, which is a public bath, two convenience stores less than a minute walk away, ski room and tune-up tables, free pickup available from the bus stop. Why not consider a nice stay at the Rusutsu Lodges as you enjoy Rusutsu, one of the best ski resorts in Japan.